the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and project. Brothers, sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So we are now at the uh, second lesson in the mini series that has to do specifically with the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi and uh, just to remind of the uh, overview uh, or the structure of this mini series so, uh, in the first lesson until now we basically covered the topic in general so we introduced the topic of specific prophethood or special prophethood which we said uh, to a large extent is simply an application of the principles that we discussed and we presented in general prophethood. So there were 10 lessons on general prophethood in which we asked questions like, how do we establish that someone is actually a prophet? When they make a claim, when someone makes a claim that they are a prophet, how do we establish the validity of that claim? Uh, and what are the general traits that we want to see in someone who is supposed to be carrying a divine message from God? Uh, and what is the type of communication or what ensures that that message needs to be in a certain way? So basically, the infallibility of the message, the revelation itself, as well as the infallibility, infallibility of the person carrying that message. Uh, and, then we talked, and then we talked a little bit about uh, the best way to establish the prophethood of someone, apart from one knowing their history and knowing that their character traits actually match those of someone who, who can actually carry that type of message from God to human beings, that's one. And two, relying on previous prophecies. So if you already believe in a prophet, and you believe in the prophecies that they've communicated to you, and they've told you that uh, they, there would be a subsequent prophet sent to you with such and such characteristics, and you recognize and you're able to apply those characteristics to someone specific, then you can rely on, that, on those prophecies and say, well, this is a prophet that I was promised. And what we saw until now is uh, basically the, how Prophet Muhammad's prophethood can be proved or established using those two manners until now. So we look very quickly at his history and his life, and of course this would require a very extensive study if someone wanted to get into the details, but I think it's, you know, the starting point could be the fact that he was well known as being the trustworthy and uh, uh, reliable one, trustworthy one, truthful one, Sadiq al-Amin, uh, and so on and so forth, and we'll touch a little bit on that today as well. So that's one, and the other, from the other side, we said that if we go back to previous scriptures, we find indications in them that there is someone who will be sent to carry carrying certain traits, certain characteristics, and we see that those apply to Prophet Muhammad. And again, we said that this is a very extensive topic that would require a, uh, a good study, but at least we're giving kind of the hints and indications on where to, to direct our, our uh, study and exploration if we wanted to go in that direction. Based on that, we said that in the majority of cases of human beings, those two manners of establishing the prophethood of someone are very limited, are very restricted. We even said when we said we, when we gave the general prophethood lessons, we said that they're dead ends. Because the majority of people are not that well aware or that well intimately knowledgeable of the 
personality of the history of someone before they can establish that that person's personality and their claim to prophethood are actually aligned. So unless you are very intimately aware of someone, which will work for people, let's say, living in the time of the Holy Prophet, but it doesn't work today. So unless I spent my a good portion of my life studying the life of the Prophet, I would not be able to say based on what I see, his personality, his history from the time he was born until he made that claim 40 years later, that is 100% aligned with someone who is telling the truth. There is nothing in his personality that would make me lead me to believe that maybe he's trying to do this for personal gain or that he's unstable mentally or, or, or whatever someone may say. So that path becomes a dead end. So I cannot establish his prophethood based on that alone. And if someone wants to do that today, then they need to spend a good portion of time studying the prophethood of the Prophet Muhammad, starting with their life, starting with the, their family and their birth and their personality and how they conducted themselves and so on and so forth. The second way, as we said, would require also an extensive study because it would require that we delve deeply into the scriptures of other religions to see where they may be referring to Prophet Muhammad. So unless you already have that belief that you can rely on a well-established belief that you have, you are certain that you believe in a divine prophet and you believe in the revelation and you believe that part of the revelation is this promise, this prophecy, unless you have that, then you can't really rely on that to establish the prophecy the prophethood of someone coming later. So while we establish them now after the fact, and we can spend a lot of time on that, the truth is for the majority of people, those would not become the strongest manner in which you can establish the prophethood of someone like Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu And that's why we said the main way to prove, to establish the prophethood of someone is through the third path, through the third approach or, or proof, which is to rely on their miracles. When someone says, I'm a prophet, either you know them, or you rely on a previous prophecy, or you tell them, or prove it. Prove that you're actually sent from God. And here is where usually what they try to do is to come up with something, to do something, a sort of act, that breaks away with the natural order of things. And that's a miracle. That's what we refer to as a miracle. And the point of the miracle is to establish that this person is actually sent from God, because otherwise, anyone else could duplicate that. And if they can duplicate that, then you know what is their special association, their intimate relation with God? How do you prove that? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them something, a sign, that people, when they see it, they say, absolutely, this person can only be someone sent from God. And we spent enough time, I think, discussing this idea of miracles and the difference between a miracle and a karama, the favors or graces that Allah may give to some of his people, or the false claims of some people saying that, uh, you know, I am carrying a miracle from God and I can do something that no one else can do. And we answered all of those objections in general. So now we want to apply it specifically to Prophet Muhammad So once we've established the two first points, that was previous lesson, now we want to start talking about the miracle of Prophet Muhammad and the miracle, his main miracle being the Holy Quran. So that's why this lesson is actually called the miraculous nature of the Holy Quran. 
So the lesson is basically a long introduction, kind of half of the lesson is, is the introduction in which a number of premises are established and we'll talk about that. And then we have uh, the author who actually goes into three different manners of proving that the Holy Quran does have a miraculous component. And that miraculous component is sufficient to say that it is a miracle and it does establish the validity of the claim of this man, Muhammad that he is a prophet sent from God. So that's basically the lesson. A long introduction with the three arguments that are going to be presented in this lesson. There are many, many others, but the author chose these three. And they're not, they don't all fall into the same type of argument. And we'll explain how they differ when, when we go through them very quickly. So the three uh, arguments or the three aspects, the author calls them factors, but I think it's more aspects of the miraculousness, of the miraculous nature of the Quran that are going to be presented in this lesson. The first one is the classic, most traditional, strongest one, the most historically uh, influential one, and that is what we find in the text of the Holy Quran itself, and we'll talk a little bit more in detail about that. Uh, and here, so we summed it up under the heading of the eloquence and the rhetoric of the Quran. Okay, so that's the first argument. The second argument is the Holy Prophet himself, and we mentioned, we touched on that topic the last time we met, the Holy Prophet being the person carrying this message, carrying the Qur'an to the people, and yet he is considered by his people and by anyone who studies his life until today to be someone who's illiterate. And we talked a little bit about that and we'll come back to that point a little bit uh, in passing today. So the illiteracy of the Holy Prophet himself and what does that do to the miraculous nature? How does that help us with the miraculous nature of the Holy Qur'an? And then the last argument, so this one falls more under the, the, the category of the first argument here, which is when we look at the contents of the Qur'an, when we look at what it is saying, the contents, the substance, the arguments, the points, the teachings of the Qur'an, we look at the internal harmony and the lack of contradiction between the different notions, that becomes another way to establish the miraculous nature of the Qur'an, and we'll explain that when we get there. Here I just wrote preliminary remarks simply in case someone wants to kind of situate this topic in the broader field of uh, Islamic sciences. Generally speaking, when people study the Holy Quran, they, they look at it from three big angles. So sometimes those angles are considered as specific sciences and we'll talk a little bit about that. The first angle you may want to look from and the Holy Quran is the angle of recitation. So there's an entire established field in Islamic sciences teaching you how to recite the Holy Quran. So on one side there is, let's call it the grammar of recitation. So they teach you how to pronounce every letter depending on the letter that comes before it and after it and and and. So that's kind of more science of recitation. And then there's another related field that is more the art of reciting. And this is how do you use your breath and your voice and the intonations and the notes that you can generate with your voice in order to try to raise the meanings of the verses of the Qur'an in the best possible way. So that when someone hears the verses, their mind goes or their heart goes to the different meanings that are 
being expressed by those verses. And that's the point of that art. So that's the art. So all of that falls under the sciences that are generally studied in relation to the recitation of the Holy Quran. The second field related to the Holy Quran is simply and the most well-established, most popular field, which is tafsir, exegesis or interpretation, commentary of the Holy Quran. And the point of that field is simply to try to understand to the extent humanly possible, to the extent possible, what is the meaning behind the verse? What is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala trying to communicate? What is he trying to teach human beings by with the verses? Right? So that's the entire field of commentary and interpretation of the Quran. And it is one of the most fascinating fields in Islamic sciences in general, and the one probably that requires the most extensive knowledge to get into, because you basically have to be a scholar in anything and everything related to Islam to be able to understand and interpret the verses of the Quran. Okay, so that's a very quickly uh, a wrap-up of those two fields. But then we have all sorts of topics, all sorts of questions and issues and themes and subjects related to the Holy Quran, but not necessarily to how you recite it, nor do they fall squarely under the general field of tafsir. So for instance, if we want to see when was the Quran compiled, and how was it compiled, who are the people involved, what is this whole uh, science of they say qara'at? So is there only one way to recite, to read, to pronounce the, le the, the words and the verses of the Holy Quran, or are there more than one? If you go back in history, you'll see that it seems that there were causes, there were circumstances and contexts which led to certain verses being revealed. That's an entire field. Why was a verse revealed? What was the context, the socio-cultural historical context, out of which a certain verse was revealed? That's a whole field on its own. There's an entire field related to are there any verses in the Quran that have been abrogated, that have been nullified or cancelled out by other verses, so that whatever was supposed to be in effect is no longer in effect because of another verse that comes and said, okay, the law was this, now the law has changed because of whatever contextual change, therefore that law no longer applies, or that verse is no longer in effect. That's another field. And so on and so forth. Including one of those fields, which is the entire topic related to the miraculous nature of the Quran. That's the reason I'm mentioning it. So that you're situated in this, these topics on their own, they've been all lumped up together, gathered together under one general heading, referred to as Ulum al-Quran. Okay, so if you want ever to study all those topics related to the Quran, but they're not squarely falling under tafsir, which, you know, in the classic meaning of tafsir, you take the first verse of the Holy Quran and you follow the order as it appears in the Quran and you try to understand its meaning. And of course, inshallah, one day we'll get into how tafsir is done and, you know, there are different ways of doing tafsir. There's thematic or topical tafsir and there is you know, orderly tafsir, and you can follow the chronology of revelation, you can follow the order in which it appears in the Quran today, and so on and so forth. But what about all these other topics? So all these other topics have been lumped together in this one big field called, called Quranic sciences. 
the sciences of the Quran or Quranic sciences. Okay, so ulum al Quran. So all these questions and all are all become kind of sub sciences. You can specialize in these different fields and study them in depth if you wanted to. There are entire books of multiple volumes written about this whole topic, this whole field of ulum al Quran. If you go back in history, for instance, there's a scholar uh, by the name of Zarkashi. He, when he wrote about Ulum al-Qur'an, he said that it contains 47 sciences. Uh, Jalal al-Din al-Suyuti, when he wrote much later, he said that the fields or the sub-sciences of Ulum al-Qur'an are about 80. There's 80 fields. And of course, so depending on you, how you cut them up or how you, but just to say how extensive that research and that area is, and usually the scholars who specialize in this field, they need to specialize in this field because that's a lifetime and that's a very deep, very broad and very deep topic to, to, to specialize in, but it's fascinating. Any case, so keeping all that in mind, it's basically, I'm saying all of this in case any of you are more interested in the topics that we're discussing today, as well as the... Uh, next lesson, which has to do with the authenticity of the Holy Quran. How do we ensure that what we are reading today is actually what was revealed to Prophet Muhammad? And what about the order? And what about the, all these subtopics that we mentioned quickly, the Qiraat and so on and so forth? Um, so these two topics would both be studied under this general heading of Ulum al-Quran. So anyone who is more interested in delving in depth there, that's where you would find the, the detailed discussions and the detailed study. So now let's go back to our topic. So kind of continuing off where we left off last time, when we talked a little bit about other scriptures. <clears throat> when we look at the Holy Quran, we see that, to our knowledge at least, it's the only book that comes with its challenge. So the Holy Quran not only contains the teachings of Islam, so it's not only the scripture part, it's not only the revelation part that you would also find in previous scriptures, but it also comes with a challenge. It openly states in the Holy Quran, it doesn't just say that this book is a book of guidance, that these are the teachings of God that you must follow for this part, same thing as any other scripture, same as any other revelation. But then it adds that the manner in which this these teachings and this guidance is being expressed to people is exceptional. And in fact, it's so exceptional that I dare you all to try to imitate it. And you will never be able to imitate it. And so the Holy Quran comes with not only the, the content part of it, which is here are the teachings, here's what you need for your guidance, but it comes with a challenge, which tells us that this becomes the miracle. And we talked a little bit about this challenge function in miracles when we talked about general prophethood. We said the point of the miracle is to establish that this is really sent by God. So in the case of the Holy Quran, the Holy Quran is not only the teachings, the points, and the content, but it's also the miraculous nature of it. Because it could have been expressed in a different language, in a normal language, as were previous revelations, previous scriptures. In this case, it wasn't. Okay, so this is what we're going to be talking about a little bit, touching on the topic today, the nature of this miraculousness in the Holy Quran. But that's to start with. 
So we have verses in the Holy Quran that are very broad and very generic. Simply saying, if you can, try to imitate it. What we promise you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, I promise you, this is not imitable. You cannot duplicate this. And then, when it became an open confrontation and people were rejecting the message, were rejecting the claim to prophethood of Prophet Muhammad, then we started getting much more specific challenges from the Holy Quran. So the Holy Quran at first said, if you can, try to match the entire Quran. And then it says, okay, well, we know you can't match the whole Quran. So we're going to make it a little bit easier on you. Why don't you try to match 10 verses, 10, 10 surah, 10 chapters of the Quran? And then the Holy Quran went one level lower. And he said, forget 10 chapters. Why don't you try to match a single chapter? And we know that there are chapters in the Quran which could be written in one line, right? Surah Al-Asr, Surah Al-Kawtha, Surah Al-Ahad. It's one line, it's three verses. It's a few words, 10 words, right? That's the entire chapter. So there is something that is being said as a challenge in the Quran when it says, try to imitate the chapter if you can, even though that chapter may be only one line, and the Arabs of that time understood that as a challenge, and they knew that they had been defeated with that challenge. And this started with the revelation of the Quran at that time, and it has remained in position. The Holy Quran had said, and let anyone who wants to try to raise to the occasion, try to provide something that matches this challenge. Someone who can come up with anything that matches the Holy Quran entirely, or only 10 of its chapters, or a single one of its chapters. This has been now 14 centuries. Okay, so there is the situation as it happened, as it was revealed, that's one part of the argument and one part of the study. And another part that requires study is, so what has happened since then? Has no one really been able to come up with any way to counter this and to come up with something that says, okay, I matched it. Therefore, it's not of a divine source. It's as simple as that. And so here is kind of the, the argument, is that my claim me being Prophet Muhammad, my claim is that I am sent from God and God has given me, and this is another topic that we said we're not going to get into, a number of miracles. Let's put all of those aside. Let's say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given me this as my miracle, the Holy Quran. So either you accept the challenge and you defeat it somehow, and if you cannot, then my challenge stands and you have to accept that I am actually sent as a prophet from God and you must therefore follow the teachings that are in this book, in this revelation. That's in general the argument. And as we said today, I mean, anyone who looks, and, and we can get into a little bit more detail a little bit later on, but the situation against the man himself, and then against his teachings, and against his religion, and against this book, has been very clear from day one. There are those who accept and there are those who are neutral. And there are those who have an open enmity, right, towards and against the man and his teachings and this book. So until now, what we're saying is, and now we've had 14 centuries. And counting. So have, have you not been able to come up with anything to discredit this? Said I listened to last week's lecture, yeah. and it 
referring to how you describe the Quran here, when you're describing the, uh, the Old Testament, <coughs> and you mentioned those verses, the controversial verses, I guess you call them, uh, as proofs that were used to discredit the authenticity of these books. I'm just curious as to, like, I don't know, how would, like, people who believe in that scripture defend that text of of adultery, of uh, intoxication, of incest, mm -hmm. of fighting with God, of etc. Yeah. How, how could those uh, that's the be normal, defended? Yeah, so that's the normal figure of God and those prophets. Like it's considered they actually, those who have tried like in more modern times, I'm not going to go into like that's a really big topic, but in, in general what they try to say is this is supposed to show you the very human nature of the prophets. There are people like you and me, all of them sin, all of them. The only thing is, according to that ideology, is do you accept the covenant of God or not? And if you do, that's all you need. And then, and to be honest, I mean, even in Islamic different that's schools of mean. thought, we do have people who believe in all sorts of, you know, in, within Islam, there are people who believe that prophets are no different than you and I. The only difference is that Allah subhanahu wa randomly chose someone for whatever reason, but there's no real distinction, there's no moral distinction, there's no ontological, real, existential distinction between that person and me. He could have flipped the equation and I could have been the prophet, and he would have been the one listening to me and following me and obeying me. And if you understand how Quraysh were dealing with the prophet to a large extent, that was their main argument. They didn't see him in himself as being anything special. He's just a man. They, they understood that he was, you know, of a very good conduct and so on and so forth. But they would not lower themselves to the point to have the humility to think there's actually a human being better than me. So what is it that gives you the right to become a prophet and not me? If there's such a thing as a prophethood, then I should have been made a prophet. And to a large extent, it seems from the Holy Quran and from certain historical and narrational sources, it seems this is how the rabbis dealt with their prophets in Bani Israel too. And this is why the alterations were made into the scriptures. It's the same logic. It's if there is such a thing as Allah sending messengers and prophets, then who's more deserving than me? I've spent my life, you know, studying religion, understanding it, and you know, I have the wealth or I have the you know, the status or have whatever I consider to be the criteria to be, you know, the, no, the nobility of that society. And remember the verses, let's say, of Talut, for instance, when they asked for uh, their prophet to send them someone to lead them into war, Bani Israel, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent them Talut, they refused. And they said, well, we have more money than him and we have more children than him. How can he be the king? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers, saying, these are not the criteria God uses. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's criteria in this case, because you need someone to lead you into war, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent you someone with two traits. He has knowledge and he has bodily strength, physical strength. And this is what you need in this, uh, at this time from your leader, right? So this is a problem. People want to impose a criteria and they will go as far as distorting the image of God, the image of prophets, and we have the same thing in our so say they, are, they don't defend it because their definition is 
It's fine. It's fine for them for, because of religion. But then we say it completely makes the entire philosophy of religion crumble. If this is your prophet, and if this is the figure that you are to emulate and to follow in your life, this is the person that you consider to be your guide to God, the whole thing crumbles. This is what we talked about in general prophecy. Yes, uh, quickly say. Maybe it'd be hard for any of us here to understand how a Christian or a Jewish person could accept that text. But like you said in the hadith you mentioned months ago, even within Islamic scriptures, with the prophet being suicidal, that's accepted with 90% of Muslims. Yeah. And the explanation they give is the exact one that the like a Christian or Jew would believe that he just is a human yeah. and he has sins. And, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so develops him this way. It makes That's it easier for us to understand how they would believe it because even Muslims yeah. themselves fall victims, yeah. but even have the same understanding of the Prophet yeah. where yeah. they believe he's just a man. Yeah. Or someone, for instance, go back and review, let's say, the, the different interpretations, commentary, and so on, Abbas mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Who is it the man who frowned? Was it really Prophet Muhammad? Yeah. Is, Good. And this is a simple one. There's a lot worse in the Quran, but this one is well famous. Okay, they'll, so they'll yeah. say that uh, it was God's hikmah. I've been told this personally that it was God's hikmah to teach us through the Prophet's mistakes. Yes, exactly. And so then I sat there and I thought to myself, well, then God could have, instead of giving us a perfect individual, given us a completely imperfect individual, and we could have learned from their life because it was all mistakes. Yeah. And so they took that. Your your. Uh, kind of like devil's advocate argument and they made that into their, their ideological you know, belief system which is God did take these imperfect people and he did make them into the prophets to show you and to show all of us that they're just humans like you and I they sin, they make mistakes, they err and that's fine so therefore there's hope for all of us all of us can aspire to that when this is com a complete distortion of how it should be because uh, by doing that for whatever reason, and there are reasons, by doing that, you're completely dismantling the entire philosophy of having a religion. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is what we talked about when we said, why do we need a religion, and why do we need a revelation, and why do we need people carrying that to human beings? The moment you show that there's a weakness, there's a gap, there's a, a mistake, or an error in the revelation, or the person carrying it, that's it, you have no religion. What's the difference between that and whatever I sit in my basement at night and create and I say, okay, this is a religion. You know, I made it up and it looks good and it's consistent. What's the difference between that and what's sent to me from God? It needs to be infallible. It needs to guarantee my guidance. And if it doesn't, then all of them are the same. They're human, human generated, they're human made. And what we're looking for, that's why we said, the purpose of our existence is to go back to God. If God does not give me a way to go back to Him, then there's a problem in the way He created us. I can go back to God and say, well, you gave me no way to come back to you. You gave me all of this and look at it, it's, it's a mess. Am I supposed to follow this person? Look at them and what they do. Look at that person and their manners. Look at this person and what they did. These are supposed to be my guides. I'm better than them. And you want me to take my teachings from them? That's the issue, right? So this is what we tried in one way or another to establish in general prophethood. So now we're trying to apply all of this, excellent questions, now we're trying to apply this to the Holy Prophet So as we said, there are challenges in the Quran that basically say, try to duplicate it entirely, 
or duplicate 10 of its chapters or duplicate one of its chapters. And if you cannot and you will not, then you must accept that this message has actually been revealed from God. The origin of this message is God. And therefore, I am the messenger of God and these are his teachings to you. Okay, so that's the argument. So if we go back to the Holy Quran, these are some verses that establish this. So if you need the references of the Quran, so in Surah Al-Isra, say, should all human beings and jinn rally together to bring the like of this Quran, they will not bring the like of it, even if they assisted one another. And there's another verse here, there's another interpretation that basically says, even if they basically helped each other over generations. So basically, if they use all of the time that they have as a species, so over thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, and they work continuously, all of them together, each generation giving to the next what they worked on, all of this together would not amount to a book like the whole Quran. Okay, so that's a challenge. So if you understand that, you see like it's open, it's, it's unambiguous, right? It's very clear, it's an open challenge. And the, in the second verse here we have, do they say he has fabricated it? So the Holy Quran is talking to the Holy Prophet. And this is of course like inshallah one day we, we give some, you know, uh, we discuss more tafsir and interpretation. We notice how the Quran talks. But since this is a, a lesson about the miraculous nature of the Quran, maybe I just mention it quickly. See, the verse does not give, does not honor those disbelievers enough to speak to them. The Arabs, they understand this intuitively. So they understand the rhetoric of the Quran. We need that someone to explain it to us. So if you see the, the verse, the first one when it says, Qul, why does the Holy Quran only talk to the Prophet? Why does it address the Prophet? Because he's worthy of being spoken to. As for the disbelievers, the Quran doesn't talk to them. The believers, the Quran talks to them directly. It tells them, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu, oh you have belief, oh you who have belief. When it's talking to human beings as a species in general, it says, Ya nas, no problem. But as a disbeliever, so in this case, it doesn't give them enough honor, it doesn't value them enough to talk to them directly. It doesn't say, why do you say that he has it? It says, do they say, so it talks to the Holy Prophet, it addresses the Prophet, but it makes them, it's basically about them. So it says, do they say he has fabricated it? Say then bring 10 surahs like it, fabricate it, and invoke whomever you can, you can besides Allah, should you be truthful. And then in the next verse, so here we had 10 chapters, 10 surah. In the next one, do they say he has fabricated it? Say, then bring a surah like it, a single one, like it, and invoke whomever you can besides Allah, should you be truthful. And if you go to Surah Al-Baqarah, it says, and if you are in doubt concerning what we have sent down to our servant, then bring a surah like it and invoke your helpers beside Allah, should you be truthful. And this is the rest, the argument that you don't feel, it's kind of implied in the previous verses, here it's open. And if you do not, and you will not, then beware the fire whose fuel will be humans and stones prepared for the disbelievers. So basically you're openly confronting God. So you know that this can only be sent from God and you are openly challenging God. If that's the case, then prepare for his punishment. Okay, so that's the, the argument. So as we said, if we go back to the time of the Holy Prophet 
And I mean, this is just a very well-known history. If you, you study the life of the Holy Prophet, even before his mission began, if you study his life very carefully, you see that there were multiple assassination attempts on his life. Okay, so that, that should be a topic on its own. Why? Because there were people who started to notice how the personality of this person, of this man, the family from which he comes, the manner in which he conducts himself, are starting to match very closely to what is in the scriptures of the Jews and the Christians of a prophet who is going to be announced. And that's why there were assassination attempts against the life of the Holy Prophet before he was a prophet. Because they recognized him. And they started to see that this is going to be the person who's going to become the prophet. His signs, his descriptors, his traits are too clear to them. But anyways, let's consider that and kind of an esoteric topic that requires extensive study and inshallah one day we'll, we can do that. Put all of that aside. Let's start from the moment he starts to openly say I'm a prophet of God, his mission begins. From that moment on, he has been at war. So the moment he said, it wasn't easy. People didn't just flock to him and accept his message right away. It was one struggle after another, one difficulty after another. It's an uphill battle. So they tried to kill him, they tried to dissuade him, to convince him to take money or to take bribes or to leave the Arabian Peninsula or at least leave Mecca and the, where the, the big tribes of Quraysh and, and others were living, just get out of here, stop ruining our religion, stop ruining our socioeconomic status, stop, just leave. And then when that stopped working and there were all sorts of means put in place, then they started to use much more aggressive means to try to stop him and stop anyone following him. There was torture, people were assassinated, were killed, and then it became an open war. And this began at that time, at the time of the Holy Prophet, and it went all the way to the moment he died. Right? So the open confrontation, there was never a moment where it was all good and easy, and there was always an open enemy. When Islam became powerful and strong, and so it was surrounded by other empires too. And the Prophet basically towards the end of his life was the king of the Arabs. The Arabs who were now suddenly starting to emerge as a kind of a civilization when not a generation ago they were nothing. No one even cared about them. The Persians, the Persian Empire and the, uh, the Romans the, uh, from the north and, and the south and the east, and the, no one cared about the Arabs. No one wants to even bother with them. They live in deserted, deserted uh, uh, lands barren, there's nothing there, it's difficult, and they're illiterate, and no one cares about them. They're, they don't constitute a threat to anyone. And now, a generation later, which is, you know, uh, the speed of light in, in history, if you look at how slowly things are supposed to emerge, within one generation, 23 years between the time he begins his mission and the time he passes away, now you're, they're starting to emerge, and if you study very carefully the life of Muawiyah and the alliances that he was starting to make with the Romans of the time, and the, how the Holy Quran talked about how there's going to be the war between the Persians and the Romans, Rum in the beginning of Surah Rum, it says the Romans are going to be defeated, which seemed like a completely wild dream when the verses were revealed. The Romans, they, they are the, the superpower of the day of the Quran, which is part of the prophecies of the Quran, says, the Romans have been defeated years before. Okay? Anyways, so all of that to say, when you look at this, the history of the life of Prophet Muhammad and the moment that the Quran started to be revealed, 
there has been an open enmity and war situation against it from day one. So what you would expect is that someone would try to seize this. You know what, the Quran is claiming that it is inimitable. Well, let me show them. And if that's all it takes for people to stop believing and to stop entering into this religion, then let me do it. So enormous manpower, enormous resources have been put into trying to do this over history, during history. And this began with the time of the Holy Prophet and it went on over the next generations. And we'll mention a couple of examples. And today the situation is no different. And you have entire organizations dedicated today, entire authors whose entire mission is to show that the Holy Quran is a copy of other scriptures, that Prophet Muhammad had access to other books, that he was taking and duplicating and adapting and modifying to make it his own, and so on and so forth. Anything that goes in that direction can be considered a form of someone going in this direction and trying to openly accept that challenge or indirectly accept that challenge of showing that, in fact, it is not inimitable. You can duplicate it or you can duplicate parts of it. And even though I can't, which is the majority of what people do today, the researchers attacking the Quran one way or another, even though I can't, it's still a human thing and Muhammad did. He created it, he fabricated it, as we read in the verses, and the claim has remained in place until now, and it continues. People like Ibn Warraf and others continue to, you know, they, they generate a whole lot of content, basically all saying, you know, the Arabic is not really Arabic, it's taken from Syriac and, or Aramaic or, 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 they go back to older scriptures to see, and there's an issue, like major issue with all of this, each, each one of these points that require, you know, extensive studies, but this is always ongoing. When we look at that, our claim is anyone who looks at the history of the Holy Quran, who understands the life of Prophet Muhammad from the beginning until now, our claim is that an objective researcher, anyone who looks at the history of the Quran from the beginning when it was revealed until today, will say that the challenge has not been met. No one has succeeded in duplicating the Quran or 10 chapters or a single chapter of the Quran, even if it were to be one line. This has not happened yet, okay? Which means, long story short, which means that the book is exceptional, it is inimitable, and it is miraculous. And so when it says about itself, I am the miracle, that it is a miracle. And here, it's a reminder quickly of things that we said when we spoke about the general prophethood, those arguments. We said that a, uh, a miracle is going to break with the natural order of things. So someone who studies the Quran carefully, they have to see, is it possible for someone like Prophet Muhammad to write a book like the Quran or not? Does this follow the natural order of things or not? And our claim is that absolutely it is not. That's one. Two is, can anyone duplicate it? So this is what we see with any, any miracle. When Prophet Musa throws his, his cane and it becomes uh, you know, a viper or a serpent or a snake, is that something that you can duplicate or not? The same, the same rules, the same criteria apply. And the same thing with the third one presented with a claim to establish prophethood. So when someone says, I am going to put this forward as a miracle to establish my prophethood, then this is where you have to take it in that, take it in that light. It's not, is it something that breaks away with the laws of nature? It's, does it actually establish their prophethood? And if that's the claim, then that's what you get at the end, unless you can show that it was 
a false claim. Okay? So when we apply this objectively to the Quran, the only logical conclusion should be that this is actually a book whose source is divine, whose source is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when we put all of this together today, we say that the best proof that we have for the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad, if anyone is looking for something, is to say it's the Holy Quran. Of course we can study his life, of course we can study his manners, but that all falls under history. And history is history. It's written by people and it's analyzed and it's distorted and it's so you have to study it as though it's a historical account which has its own problems <coughs> so what's left what's left is the only thing that we say has been unaltered not changed as is as it was revealed then it is in our hands today and this is inshallah going to be the topic of the next lesson which is how do we ensure that this is actually the same book from cover to cover okay so with that, we establish two things. That this is actually a book that establishes the prophethood of the man, Muhammad, with everything that is included in there, one. And two, that it has a divine origin. So on its own, as a standalone, as well as supporting the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad. So these are kind of two topics. They're related, but they're two topics. And for all, basically that's, I'm adding a point here that it's a great blessing because when you hear about the miracle of any other prophet, you don't have access to it. We know that Prophet Isa salam, Prophet Jesus healed the sick and the ill or he raised people from the dead. I don't have it in front of me today. If someone is skeptical, they have doubt, what do I do? I, the only thing I could say is, trust me, it happened. With the Holy Quran, I don't need to do that. There's no trust me, it happened, or rely on me. I assure you that you can, you know, believe me when I say it. I just take the Quran and give it to them. And I say, go study it on your own and come up with your own conclusion. That's the difference. So the aspects of the miraculous nature of the Quran, as we said, there are three presented in the lesson. The first one, the eloquence and the rhetoric of the Quran. So in general, The purpose of the Holy Qur'an is obviously to convey a specific message. In the case of the Qur'an, the message itself can be studied. So I study what is it actually saying, the content, and I study how was it said. And our claim, and inshallah we'll talk about that today, and anyone who studies the Qur'an should come to that conclusion, that it's miraculous, miraculous in both. The manner in which the message was given is miraculous, and the message itself was miraculous. Okay, so in general, that's what we're saying. So the manner in which it was given is what's mentioned in point one, which is the eloquence and the rhetoric, the balagh, the fasaha. This is what the Arabs of the time understood, and they intuitively understood that this is miraculous. And we'll go over a couple of examples here. So. The structure, the wording, the rhythm, the manner in which the message is conveyed, the how, and then the what, the message itself. And here I wrote a few things. Each one of these that I wrote, there's entire volumes of studies written about them. Okay, so you have, for instance, the word choice. Why does the Quran choose a word instead of another? An entire schools of thought have been built on this. Because there are some scholars who believe 
that the Quran does use synonyms. And other scholars who say the Quran does not use synonyms. So when it says Al-Kitab, and it says Al-Quran, and it says Al-Furqan, and it says Al-Dhikr, and it says, and it says, these are not synonyms. If the Quran says Al-Quran, it's referring to an aspect, which in that verse is the one that is being referred to. That's why the Quran did not say Al-Kitab here. It said Al-Quran. In another verse, it said Al-Kitab. In another verse, it said Al-Furqan. Okay? Other scholars say, no, there are synonyms in the Quran. That's an entire field. But if you keep that in mind, and this is the, 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 you know, the surprising part is you think that these are you know, easy claims, but when you see the amount of volumes written about them and how an entire school of thought has been raised with scholars over generations bringing consistently new content and supporting evidence from the Quran for this, you see that there is enough in the Quran to justify the claim and to be taken to take it seriously. Sayyid, can non-Arabic speaking people relate to this or is it like in other languages like English it's very different grammatically or something? To some extent the notions are the same. The difference is Arabic, the richness of the Arabic language is unmatched by anything close to it. The amount of roots that you have in the Arabic language when you compare to other languages, and this is where you start seeing the richness, you know, the, the depth of the language and the tools that it has at its disposal to work with, it's not comparable. Like you're talking to maybe like 1% or 2% or 3% of what you find in Arabic, you might find in the most... So studying the Quran in English is very problematic. Okay. Very, very problematic. If someone wants any level of like serious understanding, they need to spend a little bit of time trying to understand Arabic. You have to. You're, you can understand, you can only go so far without actually starting to read Arabic and make up your own mind about the roots, the constructions of the words, the constructions like there's ellipsis and ellipsis for instance. This is when a, a, a word in the Quran decides to drop a letter or add a letter. And it may add a meaning or remove a meaning or an aspect of the meaning or the connotation of a word. So this is like they say in, in linguistics, they call it denotation, which is the factual meaning of a word. And then you have the connotation, which is what is socially understood from a, a word, even though it may not be in the dictionary. And we talked about that a little bit when we started the lessons, you know, over a year ago, when we said, for instance, if you hear the word ideology, and that's why we objected to the use of the term ideology in the lesson. We said because it has a negative connotation with it today. Even though ideology in a sense is just, you know, the set of beliefs and, and axioms that you put together to form the worldview, that part is the factual part, but there's a connotation because of the history of the word and who used it and how they used it. Well, the Quran does that too. So it understands how the words are to be understood and this is a psychological dimension so how as a non-speaker as a non-arabic speaker are you going to get to that you need to spend time to get to the to the depth of this and that's why it's very difficult to translate what you're doing when you're translating is choosing a meaning based on what you're understanding and sometimes when you read it you know there's three or four or seven different possible meanings and you don't have an objective reason to choose one over the other but you have to because you cannot replicate the seven meanings with a one English term, let's say, or a French term, or a Russian term. 
So each one of these would build a completely different construction. And I will give you an example because I'm forced to a little bit later in the lesson. I'll give you an example. So word choice, the construction of the, of the parts of the, of the verses, the terminology. So the Quran has its own terminology. It uses words in a very specialized way. It means something in the Quran that may or may not match even what you find in the Hadith. And it's as though Allah wanted to introduce a new vocabulary for people to work with. So the Quran has its own vocabulary. That's a terminology. The expression, so that's the expressivity. expressivity. So to what extent, and this is why I linked it to the imagination, the imaginative power of the Quran. When you read the verse and you understand what it's saying, how much does it generate? How much depth does it generate in you? And this is where you see, is it a rich manner in which you're expressing the thought, or is it superficial in one dimension? And this is very important because it would mean, and we'll talk about that inshallah in three to four lessons, in three lessons, it means that when human beings will come later with their own intellectual baggage, with their own background and understanding of the world, they will be able to extract new meanings from the terms. Because the terms give you that possibility themselves. And if it was unidimensional, whether it was written 14 centuries ago or today, everybody would understand the same thing. But the Quran opens that door so that you keep adding layers of meaning. Because of the way it's worded, because of the choices that it has made. So the style, the connotation, textual context, the grammar, the repetition, the use of repetition, the use of metaphors, the pauses in the Quran where they are, the intonation. So all of this is very important. If you study a, a surah like Al-Waqa, for instance, the manner in which the words were chosen, they reflect the meaning. So many studies have been written about this. Al-Waqa, even if you do not understand the terminology, the Arabic meaning, or Al-Qari'a, you understand that there's a very powerful word being said, and it's, it becomes one of the terms that the Quran uses to talk about the arrival of the hour, or the afterlife, or the day of judgment, right? Right? And anyways, so that's the intonation and religion, ellipsis, phonetics, pragmatics. So pragmatics is what it makes you want to do when you hear it. And there are verses of the Quran even that talk about this. What happens to some people when they hear when they hear the, the words of the Quran? So if you are a believer, they say that you know you get goosebumps basically. Right? You basically get goosebumps. You feel it on your skin. Or if it were to be revealed on a mountain, that it would break into, into pieces. Mm -hmm. Why? So it's saying the manner in which the words and the sounds have been put together actually has a physical effect if you open yourself to it. And right now, I don't know if you follow this or not on YouTube, these videos go viral of people who don't understand Arabic who are made to listen to the Quran. And they react. A lot of them react. A lot of people cry. A lot of people just become speechless. and. You know, like there's a lot of videos and it's some theme that seems to be going viral. So, anyways, that all falls under that general heading and topic. Yeah. You said, for example, those words that, uh, for example, uh, those words that actually, without even understanding the, uh, the significance of the, of the word, you actually understand what it's talking about. Exactly. How would you call that in English? What, what is the word that you could say? There is no match like this. When let's, when, when let's say there is a sound that is made yeah. uh, and there is a repetition, you know, like, a, I don't know, 
just say for instance uh, the wolf of a dog so you're kind of replicating the the natural sound with the word you don't need to call it that but you call it that because that's what it really sounds like okay so this is usually called onomatopoeia in English yeah okay so you can go look it up so demdeme might fall under that category okay but in Arabic you have the flexibility of actually creating words you can construct the word in this way and the Quran does okay so demme or demdeme will become like a whole you can decline the word based on Arabic grammar and syntax based on the root of the word so depending if it's a the majority of, of the roots are three letters but you can have four you can have two and so on so forth. Semitic languages good question but too specialized requires complete knowledge of the language so of course here to fully appreciate and that's what we we're saying we need to understand the language and the more you understand the more you're going to appreciate this miraculous nature yet and this is the next point it should be experienced by anyone who understands Arabic so this has always been the claim of the Quran that while the more you know the more you're going to appreciate understanding Arabic in general should allow you to feel something when you hear the Quran if you take verses certain verses of the Quran talking about a topic and other verses of the Quran talking about another topic take verses that are talking about specific laws let's say laws of inheritance versus uh, verses talking about uh, giving you the story of Prophet Musa or Prophet Yusuf you'll see that the intonation and the rhythm and the pace and all of that is reflected in the manner in which the story is expressed completely different than how it's said when it's lost completely different when it's talking about Yom Al-Qiyamah where usually it's very short verses and they go very fast to give you the, um, the, the feeling of what's actually happening and how fast it's happening for instance okay so all of that to keep in mind and so basically when we put all of this together we say that generally speaking this would be beyond the capacity of a single human being to put together in this way okay so that's the argument the next point is to go from there to say it's between making the jump between saying this is something exceptional to saying this is something miraculous this is where we say you actually need expertise and the truth is even today unless you spend your whole life studying one or two of these aspects this is something that's kind of a lost art someone who intuitively understands that this is miraculous that it cannot come from a human being this is lost this is a lost art you have to sit and study and there are people who are writing volumes and creating you know apps and software to do statistical research and explain what the Quran is, is saying and how it's using the verbs or using the nouns or adjectives or so on and so forth but they're using all sorts of tools because this intuitive appreciation of it, the Arabic language no one today can match what the Arabs surrounding the life of the Holy Prophet had in terms of mastery of the Arabic language so they understood it right away as a miracle and that was the purpose for them to them the Holy Prophet did not need to tell them the nature of this Quran is miraculous in its expression because they got that intuitively so what did he emphasize on he emphasized that its content you need to sit and ponder and study which is the other type of its miraculousness the content 
Besides the expression, yes, the expression is a miracle, but the content is a miracle too. So the teachings that are contained in it, the systems that it presents to you, are also miraculous. So when, when, for instance, a verse says, you know, you need to take care of the weak or the orphans or the widows in your society, that's the content, the teachings. Not how it's said. Yeah. The how is miraculous and they understood that intuitively, right away. They heard it and they knew, and we'll, we're going to give examples of that. But the Holy Prophet wanted them to concentrate on the content too, which sometimes when we say al-batan, when you hear about the batan, well, that's the first layer. Al-batan is the content. It's what is it actually saying, not the words, beyond the words, what is it saying? It's the meaning or the meanings of the Quran. So here's the question. So why was this miracle chosen for Islam? And this is a very big topic and we're not going to get into it and it's not addressed in the, in the lesson. But generally speaking, we touched on this and we're going to touch on it again very quickly. Ibn al-Sikit, who was a scholar who came to Imam al-Hadi and who asked about this. They told him, how come Prophet Musa السلام, was sent with al-Asa, was sent with the king that became the snake? How come the Prophet Isa was sent with the miracle to heal people and raise them from the dead? And how come Prophet Muhammad was sent with the Quran? And Imam al-Hadi tells him, every Prophet was sent to the people of his time with whatever was needed and considered the highest level of specialization and expertise. And that's why you need the experts of that world to tell you if it's a miracle or not. To the people watching, to the commoners watching Prophet Musa throw his cane and it becomes a snake, they can't distinguish between whether this is magic or this is a miracle. But who can distinguish? The magician. The magicians who stood in front of Prophet Musa can tell. We, they knew what magic can and can't do and then they saw what this is doing. And right away, they believed immediately when they saw it because they're experts. This is where you need the expertise. The same thing with Prophet Isa You can be the best medical doctor, physician in the world, and you can do all sorts of things that the commoners consider to be miracles. But if you are saying this is a miracle, then people better believe this is a miracle because you know what human capacity is and where it starts and where it stops. And so Imam Hadi is telling him he, each prophet is being sent to the people of his time with whatever is considered to be the highest level of expertise of their time so that the experts say this is beyond human capacity. And when Prophet Muhammad was sent, it was the ability of the Arabs and their mastery of the Arabic language. And of course, this opens the door, and we'll mention it later, to Islam being a universal religion. Because the miracle is not a temporal miracle, and it's not a physical miracle, and we'll talk about that in a second. So, when we go, given the point that we just said, when we look at this miraculous nature, maybe today I can't. I cannot look at the Qur'an. I cannot spend my whole life studying Arabic, and then studying the Qur'an and seeing. So I can go to the experts. And here are a few of the stories. So one of them is Al-Walid ibn Al-Mughira. Al-Walid ibn Al-Mughira, they used to call him Rayhanat Al-Aram, the, the, the basil, you know, the one who is uh, the sweetest smelling, or basically he was an old man considered to be, if not the most eloquent, one of the most eloquent men in the Arab world at that time. 
completely against the Holy Prophet, trying to mock him and ridicule him and do anything. He was used as a judge, and people would come to him, the poets would come to him, and they would recite poetry, and he would be the judge on which is the most eloquent and worthy poem to be written in gold or to be, you know, considered to be, you know, this is the chief of poets at this time, or this is the best piece of poetry at this time. And this man, and I, I wrote the, the, the verses here, if we go back to his life, and this is very well known, very doc well documented, he stood and he was against the Holy Prophet and he was saying, this is all a mockery. This man is basically creating all of these fabrications and distortions and he would mock the Holy Prophet. He was one of the heads of Quraysh mocking the Holy Prophet and he was very respected, one of the maybe five or six biggest figures of Quraysh at that time. And he stood and he's about to confront the Holy Prophet and the Holy Prophet was reciting these verses. So the Holy Prophet, and I wrote them down, of course, not in Arabic, but this is generally speaking what he would have heard. Hamim, descending down of the book from Allah, the Almighty, the Almighty, the All-Knowing. No one disputes the signs of Allah except those who have disbelief. So do not be misled by their bustle in the town. So there are quick movements in the towns, right? The people of Nuh disbelieved before them and the factions after them. Every nation conspired against their messenger to seize him and disputed by means of falsehood to refute the truth. Then I seized them, so how was my retribution? Thus was the word of your Lord proved true against the disbelievers that they shall be inmates of the fire. The beginning of Surah the Nafa, the first six verses of Surah the Nafa. So he went back. They were waiting for him. He went back, and these are very well famous, known. His words themselves are considered a, a sermon that people recite and they repeat. And so on and so forth. So he said, in the translation, I swear that I have heard from Muhammad a speech that is neither from the speech of human beings nor from the jinn. It carries a sweetness or a euphoria and it is covered with grace or with calm. Its summit, so the highest parts of it, its summits bear fruits and its root is heavily drenched. So he's giving the metaphor of a tree. And it is transcending or very high and it can never be outdone. So they told him, so what has happened to you, Walid? Like we just, you just went to, to refute him and to uh, discredit him and to show that this is all a fabrication and a lie. What do we say? He told them, well, the Arabs are going to flock to you from all over the lands because it was the season right before the pilgrimage. There's Sukh Akab, as they call it. There was kind of a marketplace that everybody gathered where they did commercial transactions and so on and so forth. So he told them when they come, make sure to tell them that he is a sorcerer. Okay, so the Holy Quran has many verses that talk about him because he was one of those people, Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira, who knew exactly what the Quran was. He realized it, and if you read his words here, he is openly saying no human being can replicate this. This is from God, but I will never believe that this is from God, and I do not let people hear him. Tell them that he is going to use this spell, and they will be under his spell if they hear him. So he is a sorcerer. Tell them he's a sorcerer. And don't let them get near him, because people are gonna flock to you Arabs from all over the place. Okay, so this was Al-Walid. The, the, next, uh, the next story, I believe, was from Utbah. Utbah ibn Rabi'ah was also one of these 
four or five people considered the top figures of Quraysh at that time. And his story happened right after they started bothering the Prophet and they threw filth at him and then they tried to try to humiliate him and be condescending towards him. And his uncle, Al-Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib, was outside. He was on a hunt. When he came back and he heard, he went inside. And they were sitting inside near the Kaaba. And he went inside and he threatened all of them, saying that if anyone would ever do anything again against his nephew, that he would deal with them himself. And he was very feared. He was a valiant warrior. Everybody was did not want to kind of have him as an enemy. So they tried to push him in another way. And they told him, well... You know, are you a believer yourself? And they were surprised when he openly said, yes, I'm a believer. So this started changing the equation. Now the Prophet started to have people who are considered powerful and respected. So you have Abu Talib, for instance, or others not openly saying, we are with him, we are not with him. But now you have Al-Hamza who openly said, I am with him. So Al-Utba came, he talked to Quraysh, he told them, look, I'm gonna try to go talk to the Prophet and I'm gonna make him a deal. I'm going to try to convince him and offer him things. So he came to the Prophet and he told him, you are one of us, you are really good, you grew up amongst us, we consider you our son. And now we have seen everything that you're doing. So, you have completely humiliated, you have completely destroyed our religion and our faith and completely disrespected our gods. And you are changing everything upside down in our culture. We're going to let all of that go. And then he basically tried to bribe him. We'll give you money, we'll give you prestige, we'll give you social status, we'll give you... So he let him talk. The Holy Prophet told him, he called him by his nickname, Abu walid He told him, talk Abu walid tell me what you have to say. Because the Prophet was praying. As soon as he finished, he came to see him. He told him, I have an offer for you. So he talked, he said, will you listen? He's like, of course, talk Abu walid tell me. So he said all of this, and when he was done, the Holy Prophet told him, Abu walid you have spoken, now hear my answer. But the Prophet didn't say anything. All he did was recite verses from the Quran. He recited verses from Surah Fussalat. And here are the beginning, when he kept reading until if you read Surah Fussalat, you'll see there's a sajda. So we are told that the narrations he read, he recited until the ayah of the sajda in Surah Fussalat. So he said, Hamim, the sending down from the All-Beneficent, the All-Merciful, a book whose signs have been explained in detail, an Arabic Quran for a people who have knowledge, a bearer of good news and a warning. But most of them turn away so they do not hear. And they say our hearts are in veils, which shut them off from what you invite us. And there is a deafness in our ears. And there is a curtain between us and you. So do you as you will, we too are doing. Say, I am just a human being like you, but it is revealed to me that your God is one. And he continued to recite the verses. So when they saw him coming back to them, Al-Walid started coming back, they started saying between themselves, he's not looking like he was looking when he went. He was full of energy, he was ready to confront Muhammad and to offer him something and to bribe him and get this over with, and now he's coming back with a completely different face. And when you read the narration, when it describes all of this, it basically tells us he sat and the Holy Prophet was sitting on his prayer uh, as though he was in a prayer position in front of the Kaaba when he was talking to him. And the man sat with both hands behind his back and his mouth was open and he was unable to move because of what the verses and the words were doing to him. Okay, and he knew. He was one of the, as we said, one of the most eloquent people in, in that world. 
So when he went back, they told him, So what have you found? He told them, By God, I have just heard a speech the likes of which I have never heard. I swear by God that it is not poetry, nor magic spells, nor demonic incantations. O Quraysh, listen to me and take it from me. Leave this man alone with whatever is happening to him and do not go near him. I swear that the speech that I heard will become a great thing in the future. So if the Arabs kill him, then you will be spared. So you don't have to confront him, basically. And if he beats them, then his kingdom is your kingdom. So he's your son. He's the son of Quraysh. So his kingdom is your kingdom. And his might is your might. And you shall be the happiest of all people because of him. So he's not telling them to believe. He's telling them, let him do whatever he's saying. Just don't confront him and be an open world. Okay? And so they told him, basically, he put a spell on you. The spell that he has put on the rest of his followers, he has put on you. And he told them, you have heard my final opinion. And he left and he sat inside his house for a while. And he wouldn't leave. See? Yeah. Yeah, I'll just finish this one and I'll stop. I'll, I'll go quickly. Yeah. Might you put out two asterisks beside Yeah, so I just wanted to say his, his story. So, so, so the first one is uh, Al Walid. So his story is in, in this slide, and the next slide is the story of Ratbab. Yeah, and I didn't write the next one. I mean, you can go. There's a lot of stories that you can look up. And then we have all the failed attempts. And in history, there has been many who have claimed and who have tried to imitate the Holy Quran in one way or another. One of the stories is very well known. It actually happened about a century after the Holy Prophet. At the time of Imam Sadiq when Ibn Abil Awja and Ibn al Muqaffa, Abdul Malik al Basri, and others, they actually met in, in the Kaaba in Mecca. And they were not believers. They did not believe there is an Adapa, they're people, they're heretics. And they decided, and they were considered some of the most eloquent people of their time, and they agreed that each of them is going to, back, to go back and to work for the next year on coming up with parts that match the inimitability of the Qur'an, to match the Qur'an, to prove that the Qur'an cannot be from God. And they met one year later. And they both, they, all three of them would look at each other and say, okay, you go, tell me what you have come up with over the year. You, have, you had one year. And all three of them had absolutely nothing. And they say in the Ruwaya, Imam Sadiq passed by exactly at that moment, and he recited the verse that we recited from Surah Al-Isra, 88, that if human beings and the jinn were to rally together to try to come up with a Qur'an like it, they would never be able to, even if they were to work as helpers of each other or over generations. So these are further support that the experts have openly conceded that they cannot match what's in the Holy Qur'an. Okay, so that's the point here. The next two points, the first one is, and very quickly, and I'll, I'll sum it up in two minutes, because we talked about it a little bit, the illiteracy of the Holy Prophet. There's a distinction to be made between saying, is the Holy Prophet someone who cannot read and write? We can't really say that. All we can say is, during the 40 years of the Prophet's life, between his birth and the time he started his mission, no one had ever seen him learn how to read and write from anyone. Nor did he learn anything from anyone. Two. Three, he was never seen reading or writing. Given that, when you compare that to a normal human being, you would say this person does not know how to read and write. They are illiterate. Right? 
Go, it should be very clear. Why is this important? Yeah. But doesn't the Quran address him as an original prophet? Mm -hmm. So it says Al-Ummi. But Al-Ummi is open to debate. And then it opens an objection. So if the Holy Prophet is asking all his followers to learn how to read and write, why doesn't he learn how to read and write? And if knowledge is so important, then why doesn't he? You know, he should start by learning himself. Right? That's the issue. It opens a whole door. Okay? So long story short, all we're going to say here is what it's clear, and the Holy Quran establishes this, is that the Holy Prophet was never seen, was not known to be someone who could read and write. That's what we know, for sure. And the Holy Quran repeats this, and we'll read a few verses related to that. Why is that important? Because the claim was that the Holy Prophet had copied the scripture or part of the scripture from tales, from books that he found from somewhere in a cave that is still repeated today in some works, by the way. Or they say that he used to meet with someone and the Quran says, you know, the Quran even says who they thought he was meeting with to teach them. And he tells them, the person you're referring to does not speak uh, an eloquent Arabic. And this is Quran, Arabi uh, Mubin. This is a clear, eloquent Arabic. How could he learn this from someone who doesn't speak Arabic properly? Because he was not an Arab, the person that they were referring to. And it was magic and incantations and storytellers and old scriptures and so on and so forth. And all of these are repeated until today, right? So that's one. The, the second thing, so he's illiterate in that sense. He's illiterate in the sense that as a man, he did not go to someone to learn anything and become a specialist in anything. And he grew up in a world that is completely secluded from the centers of knowledge and expertise in the world in anything intellectual. And then when you start looking at the Quran, you see that it talks about anything and everything in a very specialized manner. It talks about things like the heaven and the earth and water, from biology to the creation to things that, that today we call geology, we call meteorology, we have the nations, the history of the nations, we have laws related to economics and finance, we have things related to psychology, we have, and it goes on and on and on. When did he have time to learn all of this? Where did all of this knowledge come from? And today, for all this time, no one has ever come back and say there is something factual, presented as factual in the Qur'an, that is actually not accurate. Nothing. Not one bit, one piece of information that says it doesn't match, let's say, with the findings of science, the findings of the experts in any field. It's in this sense that we say he's illiterate. He was never learned in this manner. He's not an expert in any of this. So where is this knowledge coming from? That's the second meaning, especially when we put it together with where did he grow up? In the middle of the desert with these you know, nomads or now recent city dwellers who don't really have access to knowledge. And we know in history they say between 8 and 11 people knew how to read and write in the entire Arabian Peninsula when Islam began. So that gives you an idea of the level of knowledge they had. And then you compare with what's in the Quran. Where is this coming from? Okay. So when you put all of this together, and we'll, we'll go back to it inshallah in more detail the next time, the verses in the Quran, so one of them says, and you did not recite any book before it, nor did you write it with your right, so with your right hand. So you were never seen reading a book, nor were you seen ever writing. For then the impugners or the disbelievers would have been full of doubt. So if they had seen you do this before, then they would have said, well, they've seen you hold a book before. They've seen where you may have been able to get that knowledge. But that excuse, that argument does not work against the Prophet. 
because in their world, from their perspective, he doesn't know how to read and write. That's one verse. The second one. Say, had Allah so wished, I would not have recited it to you, nor would he have made it known to you. I have indeed dwelled a lifetime among you before. Will you then not apply reason? So from the people who lived with the Prophet for 40 years, have I done anything before that would give you the impression that I could have stolen this from somewhere, in secret or not, and reused it, repackaged it into this scripture? The last verse, and if you are in doubt concerning what we have sent down to our servant, then bring a surah. So this is the same verse that we said from Surah Al-Baqarah. This is where I, I said the Arabic becomes difficult to translate. The, the Arabic says, فَأْتُوا بِسُورَةٍ مِنْ مِثْلِي So either it means, then bring a surah like it, like the surah in the Quran, or bring a surah from someone like him. Go find someone illiterate, go find someone who can't read and write, who grew up in that kind of world, and get him to give us a surah of that type. That's the mimithlihi. Mimithlihi could be the Qur'an, from like it, or like it, like him. From like him, give us a, a chapter from like him. And invoke all the helpers or witnesses besides Allah, should you be truthful. We're going to stop here, and inshallah, in the next lesson we are going to finish this. And we'll see if we can, uh, we have time to start the next lesson or not. Uh, so what we have left is to finish the argument related to the miraculous nature of the Holy Quran. And then we'll start the next topic, which is the authenticity of the Holy Quran. And is this the original book or not, as it was revealed to Prophet Muhammad no, I should leave. I'm leaving.